Welcome to the Dead Lady Show podcast. I'm Susan Stone. The Dead Lady Show celebrates forgotten and also possibly quite infamous women who achieved amazing things against all odds while they were alive. The show is recorded in front of a delightful audience in Berlin, and on the podcast we bring you a special selection of talks from these events. This episode is part of a special series we're calling Frankenfrauen. To mark the 100th anniversary of the publication of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, or the modern Prometheus, we are presenting the stories of four women connected in some way to that iconic gothic book, which is also considered the first science fiction novel. So, to our creation. This is the fourth episode in our miniseries, which is coordinated with a Bard College Berlin project on Frankenstein. Joining me to wax on all things gothic are Dead Lady Show co-founders Katie Darbyshire and Florian Thousands. Hi there. Hello, Susan. Hi, Susan. <laughs> uh, Florian, who is your lady for this episode? My lady for this episode is Elsa Lanchester. I should say the delightful Elsa Lanchester, <laughs> who was a, a so-called character actress from England who uh, made it over to Hollywood and then became a familiar name. <laughs> I was I, I'm not I can't say star in my heart a star in the internet's heart a star in reality um, a familiar name in the film The Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah, that is probably her best known role um, for better or for worse, I guess. It's very iconic and kind of amazing uh, portrait of a of a bride <laughs> a monster i don't know a created individual who is she's not in the film for very long but she makes such an impact with that short period of time just from this amazing look with the sort of stripes on the hair katie's kind of copied that a little bit yeah yeah <laughs> nobody notices i'm right? working on it it's not it's just not growing in as much i have to help, have to help nature along slightly ah is this lemon juice is the key to this lemon no, juice. No, I do is I just dye all the rest and just this, this, oh. these, I, did you not know this? The, the, I did the, not the, know this. The grey streaks are my natural hair colour, sadly. Mm. Well, I think Elsa's was actually white on brown, not on black. A film isn't black and white, but yeah, her hair is this beautiful reddish brown, so that's yes. actually what Do you know, what, uh, I they think did. it might have been a wig. It could have been, but when you see the colour photo, it looks like the colour of her hair. Oh, really? Yeah, wow, I'll okay. show it to you. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so this presentation was actually the introduction to a screening of The Bride of Frankenstein at Bard College. Uh, Katie, you were there as well with me. Had you seen the film before? I hadn't. It was exciting. It was great fun. Laughing quite a lot. There were some great... Actually, was almost all character actors in it, right? And uh, uh, some really great little sort of guest appearances by, by people I'd never heard of, but who, who really made the film, including Elsa. And um, yeah, if you haven't seen it, it's very fun. It's very campy. And of course, the iconic bride. I mean, I'm sure everyone has probably seen the the bride herself with her awesome hair and uh, kind of insane actions as well. Like she's uh, sort of really reacting to coming alive, which we'll hear in, in your presentation. Um, and I read or I saw a clip of uh, Elsa Lanchester talking about her inspiration for this kind of crazy head turning and hissing that she does um, as the bride and she she actually took inspiration from swans Ooh. in a park in London <laughs> I think was it Regent's Park I'm not sure but um, yeah oh, terrifying. It, it makes sense like her yeah. ballet classes would have prepared her for this I'm sure be a tree be a swan you know, it's, 
it was it was very much Isadora Duncan's style, I would say. Not the not the squawking, but the <laughs> <laughs> the, the movement. Yeah. Yes. Um, and as well as playing the bride, which she actually isn't credited for in the introduction of the film, um, it just says question mark, very mm. mysterious. Elsa Lanchester also appears as Mary Shelley. What of my Mary? She is an angel. You think so? You hear? Come, Mary. Come and watch the storm. You know how lightning alarms me. Shelley, darling, will you please light these candles for me? Oh, Mary, darling. Astonishing creature. Aye, Lord Byron. Frightened of thunder, fearful of the dark. And yet you have written a tale that sent my blood into icy creeps. <laughs> Look at her, Shelley. Can you believe that bland and lovely brow conceived of Frankenstein? A monster created from cadavers out of rifled graves? Isn't it astonishing? I don't know why you should think so. What do you expect? What did you expect? <laughs> rifled graves. Yes. Oh, yes. Yes, Shelley. Oh, yes, Lord Byron. <laughs> yes, darling. <laughs> yes, darling, Katie. Oh, darling, Florian. <laughs> A little bit of exposition at the beginning of the film. Yeah, I don't think that's necessarily her best work. But it's It's, it's just It's not her, though. No, no, no she, she does very well. You that's know, true. for being called a scaredy cat, she does not act as scaredy cat. <laughs> she acts a, a knowing feminist who's going to own these man bitches. Very good. And um, we had also, when we did the live presentation, some other clips, which we couldn't include in this podcast, but we're going to have a link on our website in the show notes so you can see them. If you could just give a quick explanation. I mean, I kind of hate to spoil it, but really, we need people to go see this. So the last clip that you did in the presentation, if you recall. Oh, wow. Yes. So um, in her later years, uh, Elsa Lanchester guested in a lot of strange works of pop culture media. So she was on I Love Lucy. She was on the Bill Cosby show. Um, and she was also in an Elvis film. In uh, that's the that's the clip I showed from this Elvis film. She plays a yoga teacher who is <laughs> who is uh, basically yes teaching these like hep mod sixties kids hep cats yes sixties yeah. hep cat ladies um, how to yoga and um, Elvis tries to join in and instead ends up all pretzeled up. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, and they sing a uh, <clears throat> charming duet. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. It's what is it called? Is it? Oh gosh! Yoga know. is as yoga does. It could be. <laughs> yes, yoga is as yoga does, and there's no in betweening. It, there's a lot of strange. It's it's not, it's not the best song in the world, but it's very funny. Has it got bongos? Uh, no, it just has Elvis like in a pretzel, kind right. of falling over. Okay. Yes, so it's yeah. worth. <laughs> I mean, you've never seen Elvis's butt. Till you've seen this, basically. Yeah, you've never seen yoga like this before. Yeah. <laughs> this doesn't happen in my class. It does. No, oh. no. Um, yeah, so that's quite fun. But we'll have that as a treat for you in our show notes. And now, please lend your ears to Florian Darling on Elsa Lanchester. So I first thought of researching Elsa Lanchester uh, for a Dead Lady show when I read on the gay internet that her autobiography. Uh, was supposed to be a riot. Um, but checking her IMDb, I found that she had actually been in a lot of my favorite movies as a child. You can tell what kind of child I was by the list of movies I'm going to rattle off. Uh, this is The Secret Garden. 
Um, she was also in The Inspector General with Danny Kaye. I had a very large crush on Danny Kaye, who was sort of the Jim Carrey of the 1940s, 50s, early 50s, late 40s, something. Um, she was also in this one, Murder by Death, um, which stars everybody. Can, can you, can, who can name someone? I know you know this lady in the front. Peter Sellers David in it. Peter Falk. David Niven. Peter Falk from Wings of Desire, or Columbo, if you're really old. Maggie this is Smith. Professor McGonagall. Yeah, Maggie Smith. Exactly. Uh, and that's James Cromwell from Babe, the old guy from Babe. And who's not on here is Alec Guinness as the blind servant, right? Who is also not on here is the guy with the hat in the front, the which is... Who's what? Who is that? Truman Capote. No. I know. Good gasp. <laughs> Yet before I tell you about Elsa, I should first tell you about another dead lady, Edith Lanchester, Elsa's mom. Uh, she was born the daughter of an architect in 1873. She studied at Cambridge, was an honor student, and then became a teacher. She was also an activist, speaking at rallies for labor and the Social, Democrat, Social Democratic Federation, where she fell in love with the son of a London cop several classes below her, clearly. Um, still, they moved in together, unmarried, in a, as they called it, a free love union. This was in 1895, mind you. Uh, her family couldn't stand for this madness and kidnapped her, <laughs> carrying an urgency order which noted the cause of her insanity as over-education, <laughs> and taking her to an insane asylum called the Priory the very same building that in far more recent years as a rehab facility has hosted the likes of Sinead O'Connor, Amy Winehouse, and other famously difficult women. When Edith's landlady caught wind of this abduction, she quickly drummed up the boyfriend and the rest of the Social Democratic Federation and um, gathered outside the Priory singing the red flag in protest. The case was reported in newspapers all over the world, in Germany, in South Africa, in America, and the Marquis of Queensbury, the man who brought down Oscar Wilde, um, the father of Bosey for the Oscar Wilde heads in the audience, offered Edith a check for a hundred pounds if she went through with a marriage to her boyfriend after all. Edith declined, uh, but after four days she was examined by the Lunacy Commission uh, and found to be sane. She soon became the secretary to Eleanor Marks, Carl's wife, and in October 1902, still unmarried and living in London, she gave birth to Elsa Sullivan Lanchester. Here she is with her brother, Waldo. In this unconventional family, Elsa would be raised, well, unconventionally. Um, she writes, my adolescent years were a series of childish revolutions that were encouraged rather than suppressed, so that the idea of denouncing my elders did not arise. My parents were socialist, vegetarian, pacifist, and a few other things, like anti-vaxxers. Mm. And they succeeded in practicing at home what they had little opportunity of preaching outside. Her mother even wanted to homeschool her, but even though she had a master's degree, this was illegal. When regular school didn't work out either, she simply joined her brother at his school, a boys' school. This, blessedly, was an advanced school where students uh, got to read the newspaper in the mornings and then decide what they wanted to do the rest of the day. Um, when she writes about this, she remembers the funeral for Emily Davison, who was the suffragette who threw herself in front of the king's horse in protest. 
Um, but Elsa herself did not seem to have any affinity with the activist's life. Instead, she was attracted to the theater, uh, marveling at Anna Pavlova and the Dying Swan, but especially enjoying music hall reviews featuring male impersonators uh, like Vesta Tilly over here. When Elsa was about 11, Isadora Duncan, the famous dancer, herself selected her to be a pupil in Duncan's newly founded school for talented children in Paris. Here's Elsa talking about it on a talk show in the 1970s. Well, as a child, I didn't like her because we had to, uh, she used to sit or lie on a kind of divan and was covered like a cocoon, a silk cocoon in draperies. And at that time, she had hennaed hair and painted nails. And for a child, you know, all that time ago, it was like something completely artificial and rather frightening. And she used to make us walk up in line, uh, line up in the morning and walk up and kiss her hand. And I didn't go along with that, partly, of course, because my parents were socialists and my mother was a suffragette. And the child of, of these advanced people did not like kissing hands, you know. I didn't mind my hand being kissed later, of course, but yeah. at the time, I was very upset. The children would dance for three hours every morning, and artists like Rodin would come and watch and sketch. Her life changed radically. Not only did she now have a bidet, um, she would also wear chiffon dresses and would be like chauffeured around in Rolls Royces to the Louvre and to Versailles um, with all the other boys and girls, all of them wearing identical coats, but in different colors. Mm -hmm. um, Elsa was very disappointed that hers was the color of, as she called it, horse dung. <laughs> Forced to return to London when World War I started, Elsa used this training and her background in Greek gymnastics of which the Lanchesters were early adopters uh, to the point of where they, they made their own fabric. They, like, they wove their own fabric. They made their own fabric and their own sandals, which were more ergonomic, which they used to sort of traipse around London. Um, she started teaching uh, gymnastics at 13 and dance, first at home, jumping around our living room twice a week, breaking gas mantles with abandon then showing off her double-jointed moves during lectures uh, about, about health and movement and other cultish um, fascinations of the time. Soon she found herself fending off unwanted physical attention from both male and female employers, forcing her to grow up very fast. The war helped too. Here she writes about a bomb going off nearby as she was hiding in a coal cellar during an air raid. I was lifted right off the ground. A bomb blast turns you into a feather, and as I floated back to the floor, I clearly remember deciding that having children was not a good idea. As for God, the war seemed to be the best proof yet that there was no one up there, and that believers in a creator were weak in the head. By age 17, she was done working for others, living in a room off of Baker Street and starting the children's theater. Uh, where she led a group of children in productions of Hans Christian Andersen and other classics, including a very, very, very early work by Jane Austen called Love and Friendship, which she spelled E-I instead of I-E in, in friend. Uh, the local council started to protest when these productions started to be too successful, uh, and they hauled young Elsa in over the Child Slavery Act. <laughs> Furthermore, how could she misspell a, a work by Austin? Uh, Elsa came to the hearing, uh, set them right, uh, and went on with the show despite their threats. 
she set them right for the benefit of the podcast listeners um, because Austin herself misspelled the title or the word friendship. Um, a few years later, she'd outgrown this too, instead starting a roving performance space called the Cave of Harmony. Uh, getting around their lack of a liquor license by uh, opening bottles of apple cider and just leaving them out for a couple of weeks. <laughs> Researching in the British Museum, Elsa revived old temperance movement anthems like, please sell no more drink to my father, which she would perform very... <laughs> Um, comically. Um, this was especially funny in a time when people were doing a lot of cocaine. <laughs> um, or she'd do songs especially written for her. Here's one she recorded later and it's introduced by her husband who we'll meet in a bit. Elsa had a nightclub. She wore of all things a pink paper skirt, a blue bodice, her long and witty legs, her mop of unruly red hair, and a man's high silk hat to top it all. The nightclub had a classic clientele. There were famous politicians and authors and painters and poets and musicians and actors. And I used to moon around in the background, hoping. She used to sing this fragment of a song as an encore. I may be fast, I may be loose, I may be easy to seduce. Though the ironic festivities attracted the likes of Evelyn Waugh and Aldous Huxley, Elsa still had to do side jobs, like working as a maid or some nude modeling, um, also for, for actual artists. Um, and as far as, but as far as relationships were concerned, she was unconventional too. Here she is writing about her first time. It was in a little area with the unfortunate name of Titsy Wood, a bluebell wood, blue as far as the eye could see through the trees, then having a picnic of hard-boiled eggs, bread and cheese, the British have a very specific idea of romance. <laughs> uh, but I cannot remember who I was lying with. The face has complete, faded completely out of the picture, like the Cheshire Cat in Alice in Wonderland. I think I preferred the role of the untouchable young woman to a close relationship. At no time did I want to make a little home. I didn't mind saying goodbye to men, but I hated saying goodbye to household possessions, saucepans and so on. After a while, though, she became dissatisfied with her partying life, writing, I was too bohemian, with too many odd friends who stayed up half the night. I was probably drinking sherry or maybe port and dancing the Charleston and soon progressing to dry martinis and body close dancing. This was beginning to add up to despair within myself. By this time, her profile had risen enough for her to appear on London's more respectable stages. And in 1927, she met a rising star of the London theatre, Charles Lawton, though he'd already seen her perform many times, as we just heard. She was 25 and he was 28. Soon after, she appeared in three short films, her first films. All three had been sketched out on a tablecloth by H.G. Wells, the author of The Time Machine and many other sci-fi classics. And in some, she appears alongside Charles. That's Charles on the right there. Um, and in the middle is the Lanchester family parrot, who they had trained to shriek political slogans. <laughs> the only surviving of these three films is called Blue Bottles. And Wells' original idea was just the line, Elsa blows a whistle. I love that they all take out their notebooks and like 
start to write her up. The, you can watch the whole film on YouTube. It's very funny. By 1928, Elsa and Charles had moved in together, had an abortion, and forced by a chorus of growing gossip, gotten married. Um, they escaped the waiting press outside, because Charles at this point was very famous, by sneaking out on a rainy Sunday morning. Um, and then heading off on, on their honeymoon, accompanied by Charles's mother and brother, understandably <laughs> rendering Elsa constipated. On their return, they moved into a flat on Dean Street in Soho, London. Karl Marx's old house, in fact. And as you can see, now a strip joint. <laughs> All was going swimmingly for both of them when, one night in 1930, Charles came home stricken, having had to call the police on a young man who was trying to blackmail him by saying he'd had sex with him. Perhaps stunned, but no stranger to the gaze, um, Elsa said it was all right, only asking later on what had really happened. When Charles confessed he'd been sleeping with men all this time and had even had a fellow on their sofa, the only thing she said was, fine, okay, but get rid of the sofa. <laughs> The only other and very Freudian immediate effect was that she went deaf for a week. Later she'd write, it was only afterward, in later years, that the boy episode proved to grow into a great wall, never mentioned, but distinctly there. When Charles's success took them across the Atlantic to Broadway and soon after to Hollywood, she really couldn't bring herself to like the US. American cooking was so odd for one, she complained about being served peaches with mayonnaise. Disappointed, she went back to England where they bought a cabin 28 miles north of London, um, complete with several terrifying swings, as you can see on that picture. That's, that's her swinging. Mm. Mortifying. Um, and moved into the top three floors of a house on Gordon Square in the heart of Bloomsbury, right in the midst of their friends uh, like Maynard Keynes. Uh, they even hired Virginia Woolf's old cook. After Elsa and Charles's success in the private life of Henry VIII, Charles was Henry, um, Elsa was Anne of Cleves, wife number five, um, which would win him an Oscar. They returned to the UK in 1933 to do Shakespeare at the Old Vic. Elsa played Ariel in The Tempest, receiving rave reviews. May I be forgiven for saying that until Miss Elsa Lanchester, the part of Ariel has never been acted. So impalpable to sight is this Ariel that his body seems to offer nothing to human glances. You see through him. In short, it is a lovely performance of exquisite invention. Her elegant style is also in fine form in the role that made her American career, for better or worse. 1935's frequently hilarious horror film, The Bride of Frankenstein. She's alive, alive! That hairstyle, inspired by a very famous Berlinerin, oh. Nefertiti. Uh, by 1937, they'd settled into a fairly reclusive life for film stars, spending a great deal of time at their country homes, picking flowers, they knew all the Latin names, um, and collecting art, like this uh, Renoir and Rousseau. In the UK, Charles got to play Hook, opposite Elsa's Peter Pan, the last actress to be chosen to do so by J.M. Barry himself. And then when World War II started, they decided to stay in Hollywood, unlike colleagues like Laurence Olivier, which the British press would hold against them for the rest of their lives. 
1940, their Bloomsbury house would be destroyed when the German plane crashed into it. Forced to stay in the US, Elsa found a few more things to like about American culture, not mayonnaise, um, but uh, wrestling matches. Little old lady shouting, gouge his eyes out, um, she said, she, she loved particularly. Uh, and joining an adorable puppet theater company called the Yale Puppeteers, in 1941 to perform unpaid, at least at first, at the Los Angeles Turnabout Theater, doing her old Cave of Harmony material, as well as songs written for her especially, performing there throughout the 40s and 50s. In 1944, parts of their clifftop house and garden in Santa Monica crumbled onto four lanes of the Roosevelt Highway below. One blog blames a sprinkler left on in their absence. Perhaps it was symbolic of the slow but unmistakably downward slant of their careers. As character actors, they simply didn't get a lot of work. So both sought out more stage work. Charles, for instance, spent years on adapting the life of Galileo Galilei with a new Angelino called Bertolt Brecht. In 1949, Elsa was nominated for her first Oscar, Best Supporting Actress, for her role as an eccentric religious painter in a film called Come to the Stable. This was after her role as an eccentric marshlands hoarder, but before her role as an eccentric school president, <laughs> if you see the pattern. And in 1957, she and Charles would both be nominated for their roles in Witness for the Prosecution, the Billy Wilder adaptation of the Agatha Christie book. In their personal life, however, they weren't really together at this point. He not joining her impromptu spaghetti parties or appearing in the home movies she'd shoot with her friends. Instead, he would disappear with one man or another to their house on the Palos Verdes Peninsula. She too would use this cottage uh, as a love nest. Here she is describing a 1956 visit with a friend called Leaf. <laughs> I can only describe proceedings in an abstract way since energy and laughter and music were so intertwined that no ordering of events is possible. Leaf took off in the moonlight with two rolls of toilet paper and winding behind him as he raced through the orchard. Later, he set fire to his pubic hair and brushed it out as if it was a daily trick. Elsa and Charles both discovered, meanwhile, uh, that they could support themselves by going on tour separately, though. So him reading from the classics, the Bible, the Gettysburg Address, Jack Kerouac, um, and her performing a one-woman show, which The New Yorker reviewed in 1954 as follows. There is a desperate quality about her art. In some curious way, she takes her listeners out of a close, tidy world and into a disquieting place filled with sharp winds and unsteady laughter. Though their touring meant that they usually weren't in the same city, when they both did happen to be in the same place at the same time, they took great pains to be seen together. When Charles was diagnosed with cancer, she flew back to him, staying right by his side alongside his last boyfriend, making sure he was well taken care of. He died in 1962, and in her autobiography, Elsa wrote, Charles and I dreamt of a freedom that is rarely achievable, but together we did free each other to some extent. Being successful and fairly prosperous is the nearest a human being can get to it. At Charles's funeral, his one-time agent said to me, well, Elsa, you've had a satisfactory life, you know, and nothing really to regret. After all, 
Charles gave you security and freedom, and that's what you wanted, wasn't it? But Elsa corrected him. Charles benefited also from our arrangement. He had the freedom and the protection of our marriage. After his death, she still had to make enough money to support both herself and her mother, remember, Edith, uh, now called Biddy, <laughs> who was alive and in her 90s. Uh, the socialist flag and communist posters uh, on her windows uh, in Brighton. Uh, Elsa was forced to sell the art that Charles hadn't given away to his boyfriends and take gigs on various TV shows. I thought about showing a clip of her on the Bill Cosby show, um, but I won't. Uh, and she was in Disney movies like Mary Poppins. Shortly after the release of her book in the early 1980s, Elsa's health took a turn for the worse, and she suffered two strokes, becoming incapacitated and requiring constant care. With no remaining family around, the Motion Picture and Television Fund filed to become conservators of her and her estate. She died the day after Christmas, 1986, aged 84. Her ashes were scattered over the Pacific. Before I leave you, I'd like to read you a short bit from the last paragraphs of her book, Elsa Lanchester, herself, which is a great title. It starts like this. In the introduction to Charles Hyam's book, Charles Lawton, I said, I realize what Charles must have felt from childhood on. No time, no time. And I ended my book, Charles Lawton and I, published in 1938 with, the procession of characters in films all have friendly faces now. We look back through rose-colored spectacles. But I cannot tie up this ending with a pretty pink bow. Getting older is, to put it mildly, gruesome. Time is now up to its old tricks with me, the bitch. It's suddenly always Christmas again. Yes, so yeah, it actually is almost Christmas again here <laughs> at the Dead Lady Show podcast. And let's just make a quick toast to the Dead Lady Show, our podcast, and all our lovely listeners around the world from Australia to France, Mexico to Scotland, and beyond. <laughs> Excellent work. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers to you. <laughs> Yay, Elsa. We hope you enjoyed your Frankenfrauen gift box. Please be sure to listen to the other episodes on Mary Shelley, her mother, the philosopher and feminist Mary Wollstonecraft, and Ada Lovelace, the daughter of Lord Byron and a pioneering computer programmer. If you'd like to give us a gift, please rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Apparently, you can rate and review episodes, not just the podcasts in general, so we would really appreciate your support. And do share us with anyone you think would like to listen. We'll be back with more next month. Our theme song is Little Lily Swing by Tritachion, which you can find on SoundCloud, along with all episodes of the Dead Lady Show podcast. Follow us at Dead Lady Show or drop us a line to info at deadladyshow.com. Thanks to Katie and Florian, to all of you for joining us. I'm Susan Stone. Thank you, Susan. Thank you, Susan. Yay. Cheers. Well done, we did it. Mm. <laughs>